Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. Today on our show, we'll once again re-air some of our favorite stories over the last 10 years of this show. Today, we will take you where people are looking after children impacted by methamphetamine. It's always been expressions of, Mommy, hold me. Mommy, don't leave me. Mommy, can I have a kiss? Things that she was missing. Grizzlies are once again up for removal from the endangered species list. The last time the state managed grizzlies, they worked very hard to eliminate grizzly human encounters like this one. I could hear and feel my my jaw breaking, and the bear was off in front of me, and I knew I was in real trouble. And what's the deal with that Wyoming wind? It's just an accident of geography. Join us for a special edition of Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash haub. Welcome to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. This year, we're celebrating our 10-year anniversary of the program, and in January, we re-aired a number of our top stories from the last decade. I guess you can call this part two of our series. So we begin the show with an award-winning story we first aired back in 2007. Many children have been taken away from their parents because of meth abuse in their home. As Wyoming Public Radio's Elsa Heidorn-Partan reported, Many are trying to find out how those children are impacted. Silly. <laughs> yes. How are your hands, honey? It's snack time at Darlene Trejo Kane's house. I don't want apple for What do you want? You want sweet stuff, don't you? You're not going to get sweet stuff for snack. The 53-year-old Trejo Kane is raising her 5-year-old grandniece, Sissy. Sissy was two and a half when she came to live with her great-aunt. Trejo Kane is now mom to her. Her biological parents were methamphetamine addicts and cooked meth in the house. Trejo Kane says it's likely Sissy's mother used meth and drank alcohol while she was pregnant and that Sissy was physically abused. The emotional scars are tangible. She comes into my room at night and she'll crawl in bed with me. She'll say, Mommy, hold me. And sometimes I wake up in the morning and she'll be laying on the floor in front of my bed in her sleeping bag. It's always been expressions of, Mommy, hold me, Mommy, don't leave me. Mommy, can I sit on your lap? Mommy, can I have a kiss? Things that she was missing. Trejo Kane is trying to provide those things that were missing for Sissy. But Sissy has a bundle of daunting problems. At times, she'll scream for hours until she falls asleep, exhausted. When she wakes up, she starts screaming again. Then there's the hitting and pinching, her speech problem, and her learning disability. Trejo Kane sees a connection between Sissy's problems and meth. A lot of the things that you see in meth rehab centers, you see in these kids. You see the paranoia, you see the aggression, you see the anger, uh, you see the learning disabilities, the speech impediments, the inability to put things together. You see a lot of that in the meth kids that you see in meth users. Sissy also has nearly constant intestinal and bowel problems, plus bladder and yeast infections. She's got to the point where even when she plays, her babies are sick. They're going to the hospital. They're they're dying. I mean, even in playtime, you know, everything is sick or dying. Because of these difficulties, Trejo Kane has started a network for families raising meth-affected kids. 
She now has 22 families in her network from four counties in eastern Wyoming. The families help each other deal with the kids' problems and keep a diary of what they learn. These families are pioneers in the field of documenting meth-exposed children. One of the few researchers studying the effects of meth is John Martiny, an associate professor at National Jewish Medical and Research Center in Denver. Since 2003, he has set up and run eight highly controlled meth labs in condemned houses and has studied the chemicals that linger. He found high levels of meth and other chemicals all over the houses. Because of the fact that it coats virtually every surface of the house, virtually 100% of the kids coming out of a lab test positive for methamphetamine. Martiny says that's because children tend to put everything in their mouths. He doesn't know the effect of this low-level ingestion, but in one of his studies, he found that 50% of law enforcement officers who are exposed to meth because of their jobs come down with symptoms. He expects the effect on children is significant. There may be nervous system damage. It is a neurotoxic compound. There may be immune system problems. There may be, you know, there's likely to be lung problems. We just don't know. Uh, These kids haven't been able to be studied enough to really know what kind of effect the drugs have. Martiny says it's almost impossible to separate the effects of the drug on children from the effects of abuse and neglect. Catherine Wells is the medical director of the Denver Family Crisis Center and an expert in treating children of drug addicts. No matter what the cause, she sees a pattern of problems with kids from meth homes. Acting out, attachment issues, all of the behavior problems that Darlene Trejo Kane sees in Sissy. Wells says that some of these problems can be a result of exposure to meth in the womb and carry over into early childhood, even if the child is placed in a supportive and loving home. Some adult meth users continue to experience effects like paranoia years after they've stopped using. It's possible the drug could impact a child in a similar way. If the child's getting the drug in their system, which many of these kids do at least at some level, it's hard to know if whether or not, even if it's a low-level exposure, that may cause long-term brain effect. And, I, and I'm concerned that it may. <laughs> at Trejo Kane's house, Sissy has come in from playing outside and has climbed into her guardian's arms. What? What? My bone hurts. Your bone hurts? What bone? Inside your arm? As Trejo Kane found out, Sissy's needs are nearly constant. She's hoping that she and other guardians of meth kids can put together enough information to overcome these problems and help guardians in the future. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Elsa Heidorn. Where'd you hit it at? On my bed when I was sleeping. On your bed when you were sleeping? Okay. One of the things you learn when you go back through our stories is how often circumstances have required us to go back and readdress the same topic. Well, here's the perfect example of that. After years of federal protections, the grizzly bear was removed from the endangered species list in 2007. Well, it was placed back on the list in 2008 following a court ruling, but federal officials are planning on delisting it once again. The last time the state managed grizzlies, I went to Cody to learn how conflicts between humans and grizzlies were being addressed. Here is your worst-case scenario. Jerry Ruth is a retired Baltimore police officer who recently moved to remote Clark, Wyoming, in Park County near the Montana border. Ruth lives in a rocky area with large patches of sagebrush. It is a sunny morning as we walk to his back porch. Ruth has some trouble speaking because his jaw is wired. 
That is because one afternoon, as he went to look for some elk a few hundred yards from his property, he encountered something else. There was a brown spot underneath of a, a green bush, greener than the sagebrush, and it growled, and uh, I recognized it to, a, to be a bear, and just that quick it was on top of me. I wasn't really any time to process any other, any thought. All of a sudden it's there and it's got a hold of my face. Ruth says he was in shock. I could hear and feel my, my jaw breaking, and at the same time I was thinking, boy, this is not going to be good. And the bear was off in front of me, and I knew I was in real trouble. Ruth had a handgun with him and shot and killed the bear. A friend who was nearby heard the attack, and he raced to get Ruth help. They took him to the hospital where his face and tongue had to be reattached and several teeth repaired. He also suffered a leg injury and had several stitches. As he recalls the attack, he admits that he could have done some things differently. For one, he was very quiet and was not prepared for a bear attack. Ruth says now he carries several items with him. A whistle, I have an air horn that I keep in my pocket, and we have bear spray and a firearm. Mark Brusino is the grizzly bear specialist for the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. He says the attack on Ruth was strange because it was in an area where grizzlies normally are not. But he says the bear was protecting its cubs, and he says in grizzly country, anything is possible. There's more and more people living in the rural areas of the Yellowstone air ecosystem, and, and simple math would tell you more bears and more people lead to more conflict. Rick Feltz is a rancher and outfitter near Yellowstone National Park in Wapiti, prime grizzly habitat. He's watched the grizzly population grow over the years. Today he's working outside on a rodeo arena. He says the bears are more of a nuisance than anything else. Oh, it doesn't affect us. It makes us uncomfortable every once in a while when your kids are outside, you know, and there's bears wandering around, you know, but, but I guess they live here too. Felt shares a viewpoint of many people who have lived in bear country for a long time who also make their living outdoors. He is not interested in seeing the grizzly population grow much more and does not want to give them priority over humans but he thinks people can live with them. If you have the bear spray and you know what to do and you just try to give it your best shot and hope that you come out on top. Most people do. Everybody talks about bears killing everybody, but bears don't kill very many people, you know. A few miles down the road is Lance Weed, who manages a ranch that has several bears wander through every year. We'd had to call Game and Fish to remove some bears from a barn about five years ago. And since that time, he has become a serious member of the Bear Wise Group. They try to educate residents about how to live safely in bear country. Weed's main focus is trash. Teach people how to uh, store their trash, when to get it out and move it out in a, in a proper way. And then also fruit trees, things, anything that could cause any sort of conflict and how to minimize that. Weed says residents must be responsible in order to make living in bear country work. When you live here, you, you better come to expect it. You can't come in and live in this environment and then turn around and complain about it. You know, you, you, you've just got to accept that you're part of where they live. One new focus for the game and fish are hunters. Mark Brusino says by nature, hunters need to be quiet. And he says that is about the worst thing you can do in bear country. And it has led to several encounters the last couple of years and some of those encounters led to dead bears. 
but we're asking hunters to carry bear spray, be more alert while they're hunting, uh, hunt with a partner, not hunt in areas that bears frequent, such as white bark pine stands in the fall. But Brusino says since the education effort started, they're having fewer problems on private property, so he thinks they are having success. And despite the occasional dramatic story, Brusino says it's important to remember that in 99% of people bear encounters, the bear will go the other way. But he adds to be prepared in case it doesn't. When we come back, we will pay a visit to a wildlife forensics lab. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. Each year, the Game and Fish Department discovers dozens of wildlife crimes in Wyoming. They range from hunting without a license to killing an animal from the road. The department takes these infractions very seriously and runs a cutting-edge wildlife forensics lab to investigate them. In 2012, Wyoming Public Radio's Willow Belden visited the lab and filed this report. Wildlife officials usually find out about poaching when someone discovers a kill that seems fishy. For example, someone stumbles across a headless carcass or a pile of guts in an area that's off-limits to hunting. Wyoming's chief game warden Brian Nesvik says when that happens, wildlife investigators visit the scene and look for a suspect. We had one incident where uh, we could tell exactly what had happened by the vehicle tracks and by the shell casings and by this dead deer carcass without a head that was laying there. We could tell that they'd shot this deer off the road the night before and they left behind a coffee cup. And it was a, uh, a very unique styrofoam coffee cup that only one business in town sold. So the investigators went to that business, and within an hour, they found their suspect. Once they have a suspect, investigators often collect samples of meat from the person's freezer, or hairs from an animal head on the wall, or blood from a kitchen knife. And they send the evidence to the Wildlife Forensics Lab in Laramie. The lab is uh, probably one of the nation's leading wildlife forensic-type labs. There are CSI for wildlife in Wyoming, if you will. The lab is not what you might picture for a high-tech forensics facility. It's housed in a windowless set of rooms at the University of Wyoming, and the scuffed wood cabinets and worn black tabletops give it the feel of a science classroom from a bygone era. Yet the facility does advanced detective work, like DNA analysis. Dee Dee Hawk is in charge of the lab. She shows me a white machine that looks kind of like a mini refrigerator. So this is the actual, the hardware of the DNA sequencer. Hawk opens the machine. Inside is a pool of gel. Her colleague brings over tiny containers of DNA bathed in a purple liquid and injects the DNA into the gel. One set of DNA is from an elk carcass found in the field. Other samples are from meat found at the defendant's house. Hawk says the machine uses lasers to analyze the DNA. And what we end up with when we're done is kind of like a barcode for each piece of evidence. So we compare that barcode from one piece of evidence to the barcode from the other piece of evidence, and they have to match exactly to say that they came from the same animal. In other words, they can figure out whether the elk remains from the field came from the same animal as the meat in the suspect's freezer. And that's how they catch poachers. Hawk says one memorable case involved a trophy elk that was killed in an area where hunting was not allowed. They brought it out and loaded it in the back of their pickup, and they drove off to another area did some additional hunting. Um, when they came back out of the area, there was a bear in the back of their truck eating on the elk that they had just poached. They shot the bear and called the game warden, who confiscated the bear. 
at the time he was asking, you know, questions about the elk because it was such a trophy. And their answers were, you know, a little bit hanky, but he didn't have enough information to do anything about it. Two weeks later, someone found a pile of guts in an area that was closed to hunting. So the game warden sent the bear and a sample from the gut pile to the forensics lab. We found elk tissue in the claws of the bear, and we matched that tissue back to the kill site. The hunters were later convicted. John Demery is a wildlife investigator in Laramie. He's been in the business for 35 years, and he says the forensics lab has changed the way they investigate crimes. In the past, they had no way to match samples from the crime scene to evidence at the suspect's home. We'd have to work harder at either getting confessions or eyewitnesses or other evidence that we could get for conviction. In addition to catching poachers, game warden Brian Nesvik says the lab can track down wildlife that attacks humans. For example, we had an individual who was attacked by a grizzly bear and killed, and we needed to know which bear for sure, was the bear that was involved in that. Nesvik says they typically collect biological samples from grizzly bears when they collar them, and they keep those samples on file. So in this case, within 24 hours, the forensics lab was able to match one of the samples on file to hair from the scene of the attack. With that, they determined which bear was the culprit and euthanized it. Running the lab costs hundreds of thousands of dollars each year, but Nesvik says it's worth it. We believe it's important to invest sportsmen's dollars in this because they expect us to protect wildlife and to make sure everybody's playing fair. Nesvik says Game and Fish only knows about 5 or 10 percent of the poaching cases that occur. But when they do find out about a case, they're able to catch the perpetrators 50 to 75 percent of the time, and they often fine the offenders thousands of dollars. Their hope is that that will serve as a deterrent against future poaching. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Willow Belden. Changing gears, from 1942 to 1969, a semi-pro baseball team was very popular in the agriculture community. Many players in the league came from Wyoming and Colorado and worked in sugar beet fields all week and then played on Sundays. Wyoming Public Radio's Rennie McKay remembers the league and its impact on race relations. Gabe Lopez is at a soda shop in Greeley, Colorado, picking up baseball memorabilia for the exhibit he's putting on in Cheyenne. Hi, sweetie. Where's the ombre at? The shop is retro. Old vinyl records hang on the walls, and Elvis flashes his smile from vintage posters. Lopez is a big, gregarious man who calls most people sweetie. His cousin, Abe Garcia, owns the shop, and together they go through a box of old baseballs. See, this is when I told you, Lefty Gomez. Garcia and Lopez come from a long line of baseball players and sugar beet workers, including their grandfather and fathers. Their family came to Colorado to work for the Great Western Sugar Company in the beet fields. Lopez says the work was physically demanding and required long hours. Great Western sponsored baseball teams to give its employees a respite on Sundays. They knew that baseball was a, was a thing that made them happy, so when they got done on Sunday, after playing a game and visiting and socializing that Monday when they were ready to work on Monday. And they would work all the way looking forward to the next Sunday game. In Colorado, most of the Latino baseball players worked in the sugar beet fields. In Wyoming, the Latino teams were mostly made up of employees of the railroads. From the 1920s to the 1940s, the teams traveled Wyoming and Colorado, facing off against other segregated teams, either all-white, black, Latino, or Japanese. Lopez says there was racism in society at the time, but the teams looked out for each other, regardless of race. The, the Mexican teams would go play 
in other towns and they would go out to drink or something and the town people would want to fight them and the other team would surround them and, and uh, say, well, you have to go through us to get to them. In the early 1940s, the teams integrated, recruiting players of all backgrounds. This put the Rocky Mountain League ahead of the majors, which didn't allow African Americans to play until 1947. The director of the Chicano Studies program at the University of Wyoming is Ed Munoz. He grew up playing baseball and working the sugar beet fields in Nebraska. He says sports can build bridges that transcend race. The more contact individuals have with each other, the better they get to know each other and, you know, get past, you know, uh, stereotypes and things like that. This was true for one of the players in Laramie. Um, My name is Ramiro Sanchez, better known as Rome Sanchez. I was born in 1926. Sanchez's father is considered to be the first person from Mexico to move to Laramie. He says his family encountered quite a bit of racism when he was young. I can remember trying to go in a, in a place with my brothers to um, buy a hamburger, and they just told us to get out. We don't serve Mexicans here. And being born here, you know, that kind of uh, hurt. But Sanchez says through sports, he made friends of all backgrounds. By senior year, he was elected class president. After high school, Sanchez started playing semi-pro baseball, and he says they barnstormed around Wyoming looking for games. Hannah had a great team. Whenever they played, the town shut down to watch. Another community had to chase cows off the diamond before the game. And in Wheatland, they played in a farmer's field. One of their players hit a ball over our center fielder's head uh, into the cornfield, and he wouldn't go in after the ball because they they told him that there were snakes in there. (laughs) The team even had a game in the state penitentiary in Rollins. Laramie lost to the inmates 12 to nothing. Sanchez and all the players in the Rocky Mountain League played for free. We just played just for the fun of it, just to have something to do. And we really had some fun times. Gabe Lopez says it's important to tell this story now. He says in the last six months alone, five former players have passed away. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Rennie McKay. When we come back, we'll take a visit to a famous Wyoming ranch. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. A few years back, a unique Wyoming institution went up for sale. The Darwin Ranch sits deep in the Grovant River Valley. Its physical beauty, untouched forests, snowy vistas, mountains on all sides, is the kind that often draws outsiders to Wyoming. Wyoming Public Radio's Addie Goss had this portrait of a community drawing to a close. 
The Darwin Ranch is an inholding, an old homestead in the National Forest. There are no cattle and no cowboys, just a spattering of small log cabins, 12 guests, 8 staff, and the silence of being 10 miles from anyone else. Each morning, the sun lights up red cliffs in the Grovant wilderness. Ground squirrels scramble over frosted grass. A weary horse breathes in the pasture. The ranch feels small and quiet because its owner, Loring Woodman, moved here 46 years ago, mostly to be alone in the wilderness. My fantasy was always to live in the mountains, and I would do anything I had to to support myself in the mountains. That had been Loring's dream since he was a 12-year-old in Far Hills, New Jersey. That summer, his parents took him on vacation to Wyoming, where he climbed the Grand Teton. And after that... It was never a question of living in New Jersey. Who would want to live in New Jersey if you can figure out a way to live in Wyoming? Loring didn't exactly take the traditional route to Wyoming residency. His father told him after their vacation that if they found the perfect place in Wyoming, they would buy it. Loring took his dad at his word and spent the next decade looking. He graduated high school and went to Harvard. The Darwin came up for sale. And then I spent the next year trying to persuade my parents that really we should buy it. And uh, we ultimately did. But my father liked to drink martinis, and without the martinis, it would never have happened. When Loring moved to the ranch, he was a 21-year-old with a bachelor's degree in Romance languages. The ranch had only a small lodge and some sunken cabins. Loring wanted to make this a place where people could spend time quietly observing the outdoors. He set to work jacking up the cabins and installing plumbing, not realizing that the guest ranch he was building would take hold of so many people. At 8 o'clock, a bell announces breakfast. 20 people sit down to pancakes in the lodge with Loring, now 66 years old, with a white beard, a red nose, and a sweater loosely knotted around his shoulders. Guests clean their plates and take off toward the corral or to fish the Grovant River. Nothing is structured here. Meals are served, but people spend their time as they wish. A lanky 77-year-old man walks with his dog toward a one-room cabin on a distant hill. My name is Frank Bond, and I've been here, oh, a long time, 36 years in a row at this cabin site. Frank Bond was one of the first people the Darwin Ranch captured. He found the ranch by accident after getting lost fishing for brook trout. Every summer, the retired political science professor leaves Michigan and returns here alone for three months. Now you can say, I must be bored with this, but uh, how can you be bored if it's beautiful? How can you be bored if you have solitude? Besides, I don't know if a hawk's going to come by or... Elk or deer. Frank looks out over the Grovant River Valley. The river shimmers as it winds through green meadow. A few yards to Frank's left, there's a small cemetery for the dogs he's owned over those 36 years. Frank is a kind of old man of the mountain, watching the land below and still trying to figure out why this land has called to him for so long. A mile away across the valley, a white-haired man with untied shoes fells a dead tree. When Brad Hendricks met Loring Woodman in 1965, he was hitchhiking through New Mexico. 
He's worked here many summers since, bringing along his wife and eventually his three daughters. Brad says it's his friendship with Loring that kept bringing him back to the ranch and the fact that he was free to come back. Like anybody else, I didn't have a life. I mean, people who work at Darwin Ranch don't have a life, you know, and so when, when, you're, when you find you don't have a life, you're free to come up here and have one. I mean, I mean, it's it's kind of a joke, but it but it is true. If you're in a position where you've got the ball rolling, you're making car payments, you're making house payments, you're not free to just leave. In the 70s, with a young Loring in charge and young Brad and young guests and young girls as the cabin crew, the ranch was especially free-spirited. There were costume parties and games of charades. In the evenings, the guests and the staff would roast in the sauna and then jump into the Grovant River. Loring says those were good times. It was youth, the enthusiasm of youth and the energy of youth in a, in a beautiful place with, with friends and sort of discovering the world. The fun took a pause in the early 80s when Loring decided he should try out the real world. He moved to California and worked for Hewlett-Packard. It didn't last long. He returned to Wyoming a few years later. He'd fallen in love with a co-worker at HP. She's now in the kitchen hacking into a half dozen chickens. Chinese only, always only use one uh, knife. Always like this. Never like puny. (laughs) Of everyone who's ever wound up at the Darwin, Melody Lin has come the farthest. She grew up in Taiwan, married an American, and moved to California in 1975. She divorced and later met Loring. She can't exactly explain how she came here to the Darwin to become the cook. To me, I just find my life takes a turn, which is, is rather interesting and very lucky. There is a definite pull to this place. Many of the guests have been here a dozen times or more. In the evenings, when everyone gathers for dinner, the ranch can take on the feeling of a house party in the woods. People bring out mandolins and accordions. Melody tries to yodel. In 2007, Loring decided to retire, and in order to afford to retire, he has to sell the ranch. He's looking for a buyer, hopefully one who won't change this land too much. The impending sale has lent a fatal tone to this summer. Many of Loring's guests, like Sarah Heckscher and Bob Johnson, say it's a loss they'll feel deeply. Tremendous sadness. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's like losing something. It's like losing a a friend, and you get the feeling say, it just isn't fair. But not everyone feels this way. Frank Bond, the man on the hill, says when he heard that Loring was planning to sell the ranch, he wanted him to. And not because I don't care about this place, I care so much, but I've known him for all these years, and I really would like him to be able to sell and do something else while he has the time. Loring says it's been a good run. 46 years, and he's trying to accept that it's ending. But this hasn't been the solitary life in the wilderness he had hoped for, and he's ready to move on. Loring says he still isn't sure why this place captured him and the others for so long. I don't think it was anything particularly special about us, except you know there were, there were a lot of people who had opportunities, uh, who maybe didn't know where they were headed, and in some ways I 
never did figure out where I was headed, but they come here and discover a side of themselves and a side of, of nature, which became very important to them. I can't tell you beyond that what it was, but magic is a word that is often associated with this place. On this summer night, the music winds down, the conversation settles, guests say goodnight and walk off toward their cabins in the dark. That was reported by Eddie Goss. Over the years, we've had a wide range of writers and artists appear on our show, and we've also featured those who have mastered a craft. One of those was way back in 2006. Here is Kristen Esplin Gourlay. I'm Ed Fowler. I make knives. I'm a master smith. I've been interested in Lady Knife since my grandma used to read me stories about Excalibur when I was a little kid. Master bladesmith Ed Fowler leans against a workbench in his airy, barn-sized workshop. A head of wavy white hair and a wiry white beard frame his face, and a plug of mint-flavored tobacco makes his breath sweet. He says knives are the oldest and most important tool, and he's clear about what knives mean to him. Lady knife, and that's what I call her, is lady knife. Why is the knife female? Well, because she serves men. And, of course, man serves lady knife. He cares for her. He sharpens her. He makes her. You nurture a knife just like you nurture a dog or a puppy or a horse. The other lady Fowler is nurturing perches nearby on a stool. Hi, I'm Tina Osborne, and I'm apprentice bladesmith to Ed Fowler. It's such an art form. It's so interesting, the different steels, the different steps. The horn, the steel, the forge, the hammers, the, the grinds, everything is, is very intriguing. Osborne wears dark blue wranglers and long, light brown hair. She seems right at home in the shop where she'll spend six months learning the craft of bladesmithing. But this is mostly a man's world. I feel uncomfortable at times surrounded by men. <laughs> where I should be cooking or get away from the grinder or... What are you doing at the forge? Or Yeah, I feel a little awkward. Still, she's eager to learn no matter how long it takes. She remembers her first attempt at a knife. Got it ground out. Uh, went to harden it. And I got it too hot and I burnt it. This was a while back. I looked at it the other day and I thought, oh, this is such a piece of garbage. <laughs> but I aspire to do better. For the next six months, Fowler will help her do better while he makes his own custom knives to sell and tends a sprawling ranch of a few cattle and several drowsy sheep curled up in the shade of a pickup truck. He starts with a steel ball bearing. Not just any steel, but steel with the right chemistry for strength. Uh, then I forge them into bars, just like this. This one, this bar is an inch and a half by half inch by 14 inches. From that one, I'll get about 15 knives. Then we come over here, we put them in a forge. Fowler fires up his propane forge. It's a rectangular metal box on legs with a small square opening. Once it's going, the flames lick blue and red and reach more than 1,800 degrees. 
He sticks in a thick chunk of knife-shaped steel on a long metal rod. This bar of steel that's in that forge right now has had about 10 hours of work under the hammers to get it to this size, okay? We have kept the temperature low through all the work into the steel, so we have refined the grain considerably. It's just one step after another. Each knife will go through several fire baths, or heat treatments as Fowler calls them. When the steel reaches 1600 plus degrees, it's red hot and soft, and you can pound out the shape. But each heat treatment also refines the knife's grain. The finer the grain, the greater the potential for pushing that lady knife to her greatest potential. Fine grain is the whole secret. Treated right, you get toughness. That's where it'll flex without breaking. The steel begins to glow, so Fowler douses the metal rod with water to make it easier to handle, then slides the whole thing out of the forge. There's just a little time to shape it before it cools and needs more heat. When you're developing a knife, you forge the tip first. That's where it all begins, the tip. Apprentice Tina Osborne watches Fowler's quick anvil work. That's where he hammers out the tip and does the finer shaping. Between blows on the anvil, a power hammer helps flatten the blade. I'm always being told, don't use your arm. Let the hammer hit the steel. And the power hammers, when you put your foot on the clutch, and your whole body tenses up, and when you hear it banging, it's very intimidating because your hands are very close. The steel's very hot, and you have to work it fast. This working of the steel is the heart of knife making. Just the thought of it makes Fowler's eyes grow big. Oh, man. Steel is... It, that glass that we're looking through right now, that's a fluid. That's a fluid. It's growing. It's alive. Well, not alive, but it's moving. It's always moving. And steel's the same way. Fowler deals the blade in progress a few more blows and then cuts the gas to the forge. After sometimes dozens of heat cycles to refine the steel and an average of nearly 60 hours of work apiece, his blades are ready for handles. He uses something Wyoming has in abundance. These are sheep horns. Uh, Rambouillet buck sheep. Beautiful, beautiful Rambouillet buck sheep horns. No two of them are alike. He ages the horns for seven years and then hangs them to dry for another three. His shop is lined with rows of dangling ram's horns just waiting for their own knives. A finished handle is polished and curved and feels right at home in your hand. Fowler carries one of his own three-inch blades everywhere. Just roll around in your hands and have fun with it. How do you... Huh? What would you, what do you use this for? Everything. He's skinned animals, dug holes, and done even more with his knives, including gashing his own skin on occasion. A hazard of the job, but it's no problem. After one very expensive doctor bill, he learned how to stitch himself up with one hand. That story was reported in 2006 and was a national award winner. It was done by Kristen Esplin Gorlay. When we come back, we'll take a look at the famous Wyoming wind. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. 
Wyoming fisheries no longer stock state waterways with carp, but the species is still alive and well throughout the state. Wyoming Public Radio's Rebecca Martinez-Fitzgerald reported back in 2012 that some tried to reduce the population with bow fishing. For the unskilled archer, shooting a carp, even a massive one with a bow and arrow, is no easy task. I learned that firsthand this summer during an afternoon of bow fishing at Wheatland Reservoir Number 3. Nuts. It's no easier with a bow and arrow, and its accoutrements made for the left-handed archer. Now, I'm not much of an archer, but I'm definitely not left-handed. So why was I playing with ill-suited weapons in algae-filled water at a beach covered with cows in their patties? My friend Janet Chen, a fit and proper young lady whom I know by her nickname, Ogre, invited me. I don't often turn down a bizarre-sounding adventure. Here's Ogre. Um, I like to shoot things and hunt, and it's nice that I get to do it in water where it's nice and cool, and nobody cares about carp, and so I don't really have to feel that bad about killing them. Ogre explained that unlike game trout, the carp just live in the reservoir. There are plenty of them, and her friends use the carcasses in their gardens and under new trees and shrubs. I called the Wyoming Game and Fish Department to ask about this. Regional fisheries biologist Steve Gale says fisheries used to stock the waterways with the hardy common carp. What they thought back in the day is that they're going to be kind of a popular uh, food fishery, and just that kind of never really panned out. So they're in a lot of waterways, and... Um, they can provide a lot of sport on your hook and line as well. They can get to enormous sizes and can really uh, put a tug on your line. Unlike trout, the carp aren't considered game fish. You need a fishing license to harvest them with a line, but not if you're using a bow and arrow. I wasn't much good at hunting bottom feeders, so I passed the bow and arrow to Ogre and took a break. Within two shots from the land, Ogre hit her target, so I sprinted over as she hauled an enormous 15-pound carp onto the shore. It's huge. It was almost the size of a cat and flapping with all its muscle. Ogre raised her axe and aimed it. So the way I kill them is with the blunt side, I just take a golf, a golf swing to the head. She braced the fish with her foot, then pulled the barbed arrow from the carp's side the way it went in. So this is the hard part. I had every intention of stringing the carp while Ogre went into the water to bag a second fish, but I completely chickened out. So Ogre strung up the fish and I hauled the 15-pound monster back to her truck. I brought the carp to my neighbor, Roger Goldfinger, to use in his compost pile. Now this might sound wrong to you. I'm no gardener and even I've heard you're not supposed to mix meat with compost. So I later called Craig McComey of the Wyoming Department of Environmental Quality. He oversees recycling for the state and by proxy composting. He reminded me of the story of the 17th century Patuxent tribal member Tisquantum. Many Americans know him as Squanto and have heard how he helped immigrants from Europe. And what they did back in the day was the soils where the pilgrims landed were not very good and they weren't amenable to growing crops. And so the Indians had showed them that if you throw a fish in the ground with your corn seeds, uh, that the corn seed would grow better. He says fish are a pretty awesome source of nitrogen, but as my neighbor Roger soon found out, it can still be difficult to use them in compost. I didn't know what a carp was. I thought a carp was the size of maybe a trout or something, you know under 10 inches, maybe a little bit fatter. So when I saw this thing in my yard, I freaked out. 
the huge fish scared his cat, too. In a rush to get rid of the enormous carp, he buried it in a shallow hole next to his compost pile, and that wasn't a good idea. Later in the afternoon, as I was coming home, I see these birds gathered off in a quarter, and sure enough, there's the carp, its head now missing, and the birds picking at it. And then the next day, I dug a much deeper hole for it and finally buried it and put some rocks on top of it. And that seems to have kept it underground at least, kept it from rising from the dead. Had I asked him about it earlier, the DEQ's Craig McComey would have warned me about scavengers, which are way more attracted to fish meat than decomposing potato peels. He advised us to dig a deeper hole under the compost, cover it with mulch to disguise the fish smell, and maybe even build a fence around it next time. Roger assures me he is not interested in a next time. But if the stars align, Ogre plans to be out on the reservoir again next summer, bagging carp and bringing them back for her own friends, who are more than happy to take them off her hands. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Rebecca Martinez. Twenty sixteen has obviously been another windy year. The wind has rattled window panes and whipped through trees and woke people from solid sleep. Well, things were the same back in twenty ten, and that's when Wyoming Public Radio's Molly Messick took a good look at that famous Wyoming wind. We all know the sound of wind, but how about a few facts? First off, Wyoming is, on average, the windiest state. Last week, the highest wind was recorded at the top of Mount Coffin in the Wyoming range. It blew 113 miles per hour. But that's nothing compared to 1974. That year, there were 100-mile-an-hour winds statewide. A freight train blew off its tracks not far from Cheyenne. Wyoming is a windy place. There's no doubt about that. But why? There's a couple of different reasons. One of them is that it's just an accident of geography. That's state climatologist Steve Gray. He says there's a point in western North America where three different weather systems converge. And what's located right at that point? Wyoming. Then you have to think about topography. In some places, the state's ups and downs are like a nature-made wind tunnel. You begin to funnel that wind through different mountain systems, hills, and so forth, and it's, it's almost like a, a natural wind amplifier. It's real. It's, it's windy here. There are lots of names for wind. In Germany, there's a wind known as the hairdryer. There's the Chinook, the Santa Ana, the Mistral. But in Wyoming, people don't often name the wind. They curse it. Just ask anyone on the street. It's a better-than-even chance they'll have strong feelings about wind. I don't like it. I call it windy when I walk out with a stocking cap and it blows off and the pencil behind my ear blows off. That's when it's too windy. (laughs) Uh, It's oppressive. Makes me feel like I'm hunkered down all the time. Well, if it goes on too long, it makes me crazy. And I get very, um, I suppose, claustrophobic because it just drives you nuts. 
University of Wyoming historian Phil Roberts says it was worse for people who moved west with the railroad in the late 1800s. Take John Crowley. He was one of the first people to start building on the spot of land that would be Laramie, and he kept a good diary. There is one portion where he writes that uh, all the day's work went for naught because overnight the wind came up and blew the building down. What did he do then? He started to rebuild. So he starts the next day, and they put the building back up. And sure enough, two days later, the wind comes up again. And it blows the building down again. That was in 1868. Not quite 20 years later came one of the most famous blizzards in Wyoming history. It's legendary. There, there are accounts that as many as uh, a quarter of, of all of the cattle on the, on the open range perished. Roberts says the worst part of that blizzard was the wind. The cattle out on the open range were trying to keep their backs to the snow, and they just sort of drift with the wind and, and end up against obstacles and freeze to death against, uh, against various obstacles because they couldn't go any further. We know the wind can do terrible things, but what about the most persistent idea about it, the one you hear most often? The wind absolutely makes us crazy. Kind of makes me crazy. Ooh, geez. Yeah, I don't like going out in it. Can the wind make people crazy? In a survey published last year, harsh weather and wind had the most significant negative impact on quality of life in Wyoming. Ann Bunn is a clinical psychologist, and she says the wind can take its toll. We live in a very harsh country where people are already isolated in many, many ways. The wind, she says, can amplify that. It impacts our ability to live our life maybe in the way that we want to. And so things feel a little more out of control for us. And as a result, we can feel more anxious or we can feel more down. Chances are that when you think of the wind and of sanity, you have in your mind the image of a pioneer woman standing out on the open plains. The wind is blowing and there's not another soul in sight. The drought is punishing. The dirt and the grit blow through. Wyoming author Mark Sprague draws from those images in his essay titled Wind. He's read the diaries of frontier women who felt the wind drive them hopeless. But Sprague also captures the joy of the moment when the wind stops. And there's silence. Here he is, reading from that essay. No wind, we shout and wonder. We speak too loudly. We are accustomed to screaming over the yowl of air, We quiet to a whisper. No wind, we whisper. We smile and slump. Think of the slouch that survivors affect at the end of a crisis. That is our posture. As Sprague says, those days do come a few times a year. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Molly Messick. Thanks for listening to this special Open Spaces. This show will be available on our website and podcast. You can find it through wyomingpublicmedia.org. Just click on Open Spaces. Anna Rader is our web editor. For news of the day and other information, we also invite you to like our Wyoming Public Radio News Facebook page. And we invite you to follow all of our reporters on Twitter. You can find me under the handle ButterBob. We are always looking for good stories and interview ideas. You can pitch those through our website as well. Have a tremendous Easter weekend. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.